Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the search for meaning. With me is Dr. Alex Patakos, who is author of Prisoners of Our Thoughts, as well as co-author of The Opa Way. Alex is co-founder of the Global Meaning Institute. Welcome, Alex. Oh, th- thank you, Jeff. It's been great to be with you. Yes, it's a pleasure to see you again and to be with you. Yes. Your book, Prisoners of Our Thoughts, is based largely on the work of uh, the great psychiatrist, Victor Frankl, with whom you had a personal relationship. Uh, that's correct, and I'm actually still very honored and very proud to be uh, friends and, and have uh, the members of Dr. Frankl's family still supporters of the work that we do with uh, the Search for Meaning. Mm-hmm. He developed logotherapy, right. which is, is a whole school. Of, it's more than a school of psychiatry. It's really a, a way of looking at the human being, a, uh, you could say a philosophy or a psychology, uh, based on the notion that the, the central drive of the human being is, mm-hmm. is to find meaning or right. to create meaning. Right. Yeah, actually, it's less to create meaning as much as it is to find meaning. It's the, the discovery process that's really most important to, uh, to Dr. Frankel's work. Uh, he did create a system of psychotherapy, which in large part, the notion of logotherapy could be looked at as therapy through meaning. But if you go deeper into the roots of the of the word logos, uh, the logo part of logotherapy, it actually has ancient Greek roots that really looks at human beings as spiritual entities. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, the idea of therapy through meaning could be looked at as health through meaning, but it also could be looked at as spiritual, you know, spirit through meaning. It's the idea of really uncovering something that is innate to all human beings. Mm-hmm. How would you define meaning? Yeah. You know, I, I've been asked that question so many times over the years, and particularly since the book was uh, first released. And in many ways, the best way to define meaning, which is obviously something that's uh, per- is, is a perceived notion that has a very individualized context. Mm-hmm. It has a context that's based on the environment and so forth. But I, I often ask clients uh, to, to look at what is meaningless in their life. Mm-hmm. Because it's much easier for people to identify and to list, I mean, just a number of things in their personal lives, in their, in their work lives, and so forth, things that they find to be meaningless. And then if we take that list and convert that and look at, okay, what do we now need to do in order to get rid of the less part of meaningless? Mm-hmm. That's typically uh, something that will help guide them in the direction of the human quest mm-hmm. for meaning. Well, I think it's interesting that that you describe meaning as something we discover rather right. than something we create. Right. That's right. I, I know there's our schools of philosophy right. that say that we only create meaning, that there, right. there is no meaning apart from anything that we create. Yeah. Another school of philosophy... Uh, I interviewed once Houston Smith, the mm-hmm. great scholar of the world's religious traditions, mm-hmm. and he told me once, and it stuck with me, he said, the closer you are to 
the divine, mm-hmm. the more meaningful everything right. is. Yeah, you know, and and Dr. Franco was very very much in alignment with that frame of, of thinking mm-hmm. because he actually, and this is very important, besides being a neurologist and then becoming a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. he was also an existential philosopher. Yeah. And his doctoral thesis, after he had his MD, he got his PhD, and his doctoral thesis really became the book Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning. Mm-hmm. And when you look at ultimate meaning, uh, that really became much more of that transcendental kind of approach, that spiritual dimension to meaning, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, goes beyond some of the, the daily, I call them in my book, mini meanings, almost like mini me in the movie Austin Powers, yeah. is that we have meanings along the path. And if we can start to kind of figure out, okay, are there any patterns in those, uh, those daily mini meanings, maybe we'll find something that's a larger meaning. And then ultimately, of course, based on faith, based on, you know, whatever concept we might have in terms of something that's beyond ourselves, that's where we can get into the spiritual realm of meaning. Mm-hmm. Now, Frankel was famous right. because of the fact that he was a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp and he developed his philosophy and his psychiatric practice largely out of uh, his efforts to Mm -hmm. survive the horrors uh, that he had to endure at that time. And uh, he felt that his quest for meaning in the middle of all of this incredible misery is what kept him going. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and that that is tr- that's true, Jeff. I think what's really important for viewers to understand is that Viktor Frankl's philosophy about meaning uh, preceded his, World War II. It preceded his incarceration in actually mm-hmm. four different camps, and. In many respects, going to the camps, and as terrible as it sounds, but it was almost as if he was being field tested. His ideas that he had developed, even as, as far back as when he was in high school, he would start thinking about the philosophy of life and the philosophy of meaning and what, what are the intrinsic motivators that keep mm-hmm. people going. And when he was, when he was in the camps, including Auschwitz, uh, he really saw people who, in many respects, if they had no reason to live, would give up. And then he had other people who had a sense of purpose and had a quest, uh, a drive for meaning. They were the ones who were more likely to survive in spite of all the the horrors around them. Mm -hmm. Well, Freud is well known for having developed a psychology that says it's the sexual drive, the urge toward pleasure that motivates all human behavior. And his uh, disciple Alfred Adler said, right. "No, it's the it's the search for power." Eventually, right. he said, "It's it's the search for altruism." Why did Frankel uh, break with these? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the the will to pleasure, the will to power, and of course, both you know, uh, uh, Freud and Adler were uh, mentors of, of Viktor Frankl, and he was for for uh, for a while he was part of their school of thought. Uh, but I think in terms of his own personal life, and he was very practical. I mean, one of the things about uh, Frankel, he was a humanist. Uh, his idea, his notion about psychotherapy and psychiatry was really more to humanize psychiatry, to dehumanize psychotherapy, and even to go beyond that, to even spiritualize it. Mm-hmm. And the notion of what are the intrinsic motivators, one of the things that Frankel learned was that in spite of uh, what might be outside of ourselves, that the motivations that kept us alive. I mean, because think about it for a second. When you're a prisoner of war in a concentration camp or in the in, 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 in currently in the, in the times that we have in civil strife around the world, and everything is stripped from you, you don't have the opportunity to have power. You don't have the opportunity to have pleasure. What keeps you going? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Frankl learned was it was that quest 
for meaning, for something deeper and something that extended beyond ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that became a really passionate part. And and here we're talking about an individual who I know looking in his eyes and being like I am with you today, uh, the opportunity to see somebody who had this incredible power, this this notion that somehow his passion for life was beyond anything that could happen. And so you could shop until you drop for pleasure. You can have all the sex you want. You can have all the money you want. And of course, we see this all the time. We see all kinds of celebrities that have all the mm-hmm. things that we would think, the trappings that should give us everything that we need. And the reality is they, we, we see people committing suicide, becoming depressed, getting addicted to all kinds of different things. And that's the part that really Franco looked at, he examined it very carefully, and he said, okay, so what is the meaning that, or what are, what are the internal drivers that will keep people, keep people going in spite of the controversies, in spite mm-hmm. of the challenges? And it was really that search for meaning that he found to be the most important factor. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to suggest that the, the word search is key here. Correct. Uh, absolutely. And the search goes on. I mean, the search is never ending. I mean, one of the things you'll see in my book is that, you know, that there, there is a difference between purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. Because to Frankel, there's a seed of meaning in everything. Every moment of our lives, to our very last breath. Mm-hmm. Purpose is more directional. There's an aim. And, you know, Fra- Frankel said this, and I, and I quote this in the book. He said, you know, there's a saying, where there's a will, there's a way. And Frankel would say, but where there's an aim, there's a will. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, is that having an aim was that purpose. Uh, that we search for, but that was the destination we were going. It didn't mean that meaning didn't exist. People who don't think that they know what the purpose of their life is or their purpose of their job doesn't mean that that situation doesn't have meaning because meaning is around mm-hmm. us all the time. Good times, bad times, mm-hmm. whatever. But oftentimes people in every walk of life, every station in life, right. every situation have moments when it all seems meaningless. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the key, there's, there's actually an exercise in Prisoners of Our Thoughts. I call it existential digging. Mm-hmm. And it's the notion that mm-hmm. whatever circumstance you may confront, that I ask you know readers and I ask clients to look at that situation with really four different types of questions. The first one is, you know, how did you respond to the situation? All right. So you get, you know, somebody, uh, you know, yells at you at work, a client, a boss, uh, a student or whatever. Uh, you get cut off in traffic. So the first question is, how did you respond behaviorally? You know, what are the manifestations you actually did? Did you, you punch the person out? You know, you, uh, you, you, you know, you basically ran a red light. Uh, you got in a fight and you slammed the door. The second really question is, how'd you feel about the situation? So that's the next level of death. So you write down words that, you know, you, you know, how you, how'd you feel? I felt elated. I felt depressed. I felt a- anguished. What Whatever. Uh, the third level really is what you learn from the situation. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth level, which is the most difficult thing, but this is really the part that existential d- digging tries to bring us to, is what are you now going to do to grow and develop from that situation? Mm-hmm. And that's the part people have a difficult time because, you know, I see people all the time taking workshop after workshop and doing all kinds of reading and so forth, but they're basically not, they're changing, but they're not growing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important part. And so the idea of existential digging is even in those moments where you have despair, trying to get somebody to look at what am I, you know, how do I feel about it? What am I learning from those situations? You know, maybe I need to change my job. I need to change my relationship. Uh, I need to change the way I look at the world. Mm-hmm. And I see this every day. I mean, with clients uh, literally around the world uh, that are confronting everything from, you know, economic crises to personal hardships to, you know, health issues and so forth. And how do we deal with that? And, and those are the kinds of people who overcome those challenges that mm-hmm. are the most inspirational. Mm-hmm. 
One of the paradoxes of the search for meaning is that oftentimes people with the best of intentions uh, end up engaging in behaviors that thwart the very thing they're intending to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this is a, you know, this is an interesting thing. And on the one level, you know, Franco referred to it, and I write about this, it's called paradoxical intention, uh, because in, in many ways, we, you know, we are our worst enemy. We're mm-hmm. working against ourselves. And it, it may be that, say, as a practical sense, in the workplace, somebody wants a job pr- promotion, mm-hmm. and they spend all their time trying to get that promotion, and they're tripping over themselves, almost like a scene from Saturday Night Live in mm-hmm. the other days. And they end up working against their very best intentions. Mm-hmm. And so part Part of it is to kind of, you know, lay back, to let go, to, you know, focus on something else. I mean, there are many different techniques, and I obviously don't have time right now, but there are many different logotherapeutic and logotheoretical ways of dealing with those kinds of circumstances, those kinds of situations. But you're absolutely correct. Sometimes we are our worst enemy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Freud and Adler often talked about the role of the unconscious. Right. The, the, the search for meaning seems to me, to be largely a conscious activity. Yeah. yeah, it's a conscious act, and it's also really a manifestation or a type of height psychology as opposed to depth psychology. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is that to Frankel, it was more important to look at where, and it doesn't mean that we don't complement you know, the other kinds of things, and including using you know psychotropic drugs and so forth. The, the intervention can really complement mm-hmm. a variety of different modalities. Mm-hmm. But the idea behind logotherapy is that it really is where we are today and where are we going. Mm-hmm. You know, right? And so the fact that, you know, the way we were potty trained, you know, maybe was not really the best way that we could have had or we had other situations in our past. Frankel said, okay, there's certain people that need the kind of regressive therapies that would, would accommodate mm-hmm. that. But in many cases, what are we going to do from today mm-hmm. forward? And I think that becomes an important so, if you're a person who has experienced a lot of trauma in your early life, uh, maybe you need a different form of therapy. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, I mean, this is where I think many people kind of miss this notion of what is logotherapy, and and you know, you know, if you can't measure it, you know, can't you know, if if if, if you can't count it, it doesn't count. Kind of a, a philosophy. And in many respects, so much of the existential kind of approach that Frankl uh, took is something that. Uh, is, is it's so humanistic that you do have to kind of almost have a, a level of faith that you believe in the human spirit. And that becomes a very difficult thing for many empirical psychologists and, and, and other types of people that are really kind of locked into the, their left brains mm-hmm. that, you know, we've got to be able to measure this. And so the idea behind logotherapy is that there is a dimension and it's a dimension that, you know, and you know this because of your work, that, you know, we know it exists, but we don't always know why and how and mm-hmm. how do we measure it. Yeah. Well, I, I think an important part of any path towards self-realization is confronting the dark side. Right. Uh, Freud talked about it in terms of our aggressive and our right. lustful urges, but there, there are many urges that we have that uh, are not socially acceptable and for good reason. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose, how, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, again, it's very important from the perspective of Frankel's way of looking at the world and looking at individuals. He was a major uh, proponent of 
personal responsibility and collective responsibility. I mean, he, you know, many times uh, felt that, you know, in our country, in North America, particularly the United States, that we are very obsessed with liberty, with freedom. And he had proposed years ago that we had, in addition to the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast, a Statue of Responsibility mm -hmm. on the West Coast, because he felt that we are not always feel, you know, we're not always assuming the responsibility for our own actions, including the consequences of our own actions. And I think, and that's as a society as well as individuals. So I think a major part of logotherapeutic intervention is to really, again, do that kind of existential digging, mm -hmm. which part of it is doing kind of a cost-benefit analysis. Okay, if I do these kinds of behaviors, you know, what, you know, what are the benefits? I mean, some people get benefits out of complaining, bitching, and moaning. And understanding that and gaining yeah. insight into that maybe can help us stop doing it. Because all of a sudden we find out what well, our bitching and our moaning and our complaining, whether it's in personal life or in our work life, is actually working against our best intentions. That's the reason we're not getting you know, paid more, we're getting a, a promotion, we, we can't get a good relationship and so forth. So the idea behind this is really understanding how the search for meaning is a personal as well as a collective responsibility and how we, in effect, co-create our reality. Mm -hmm. Frankel, or Frankel, as you say, right. suggested that you take the, this psychotherapeutic approach, logotherapy, and, and to the world at large, and in particular to the business community. Right. right, right. Yeah, I mean, Frankel's approach, which, which again is something, I mean, he was very much, even though he personally didn't have kind of the, the marketing machine that, uh, you know, that Freud had and the disciples that were out there selling his work or, or even Adler and certainly Carl Jung and some of the others that we were familiar with. Uh, and that, you know, on one level, that was, you know, you know, perhaps something that, you know, I wish we could go back and redo because I think, my one part of my mission in life has been to really stand on Viktor Frankl's shoulders, but also to have the benefit of being able to make sure that his ageless wisdom is advanced. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he didn't necessarily do that in a way that could could uh, to maybe reach the level of popularity that some of these other schools have. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of the school of logotherapy, and I'm going to actually be going uh, going down to uh, to Colombia to to speak at a conference for existential coaches uh, in, in South America. Um, the idea is that many of them have talked to me about the fact that they want to bring this and they want to bring Frankel's wisdom into uh, corporations, into schools, into the public domain mm -hmm. and not keep it inside the psychotherapist's uh, yeah. office. And you earlier spoke about the fact that it's considered a height therapy yes. as opposed to a depth exactly. therapy. That would lend itself, I think, to the you know, world of business. Ab absolutely. And, it, and it's really interesting because I've watched, you know, the, the, the Prisoners of Our Thoughts, I'm, I'm proud to say, is in 22 languages right now. I've seen it. Uh, it was a national top 10 bestseller in Spain. Uh, I've been able to speak to groups, you know, all around the world on this, on this topic. And, you know, personally, you know, to me, to see people be able to read something and then to, I mean, and again, a large part of our population or even people who are physically incarcerated. They're in prison. Mm -hmm. Some are on death row. Mm -hmm. uh, and to be able to read a book and to understand a form, a school of psychotherapy, and to do it almost in a self-help approach. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a way that they can do something for themselves without necessarily having to, to, you know, to go to a psychotherapist. In the beginning, when the book first came out, interestingly enough, it, it was shunned in some respects because I, I remember one person telling me once that he, he referred to me as the the Anthony Robbins, the Tony Robbins of logotherapy, of psychotherapy. Mm. And uh, and I took that as a compliment 
because the idea is, is that to be able to motivate people to see and to look inside themselves and to look at height therapy and height psychology in a way that they could do something about it mm-hmm. uh, without having to necessarily, you know, retain the services of a psychotherapist to me was, you know, a, a service. Mm-hmm. It was a public service. And so the idea behind this is, is very powerful. And I think bringing it into the workplace, being able to bring meaning into people's lives and government, uh, being able to bring meaning into public policy mm-hmm. so that people can actually uh, see what are the meaningful values and goals that they're trying to achieve when they develop a new government program. Sometimes I don't think we understand that, and I think that that's something that needs to be uh, focused upon. Mm -hmm. In your book, you write about Nelson Mandela as an individual, uh, probably not, I'm assuming, not a a, a direct student of Viktor Frankl, but somebody who applied those principles in his own life. Yeah. I think that's a very important point, Jeff, because so many people, when they read this book, uh, really start to see that, you know, I'm living my life that way. Or I know somebody who has this challenge and maybe I can do something with that. So people like Mandela, I mean, there's some people obviously attribute, uh, Victor Frankl's writings and his philosophy to their survival. I mean, you know, John, mm-hmm. Senator John McCain, for example, I mean, the first, uh, literally the first page of his book, Faith of My Fathers, uh, Faith of Our Fathers, uh, uh, actually said that, you know, it was Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning that actually helped him survive his prisoner works experience in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So there are some that actually can draw that connection immediately and explicitly. Others like Nelson Mandela, uh, you know, are really manifestations of logotherapeutic life, living Mm -hmm. and working with meaning in a way that uh, Victor Franco would obviously endorse. You have a wonderful story, I wonder if you can uh, repeat for our viewers about, uh, if I recall correctly, it it was Bill Clinton who asked Mandela about uh, the expression on his face when he was first released from prison. He seemed angry, and then uh, when it was televised, right. and uh, Clinton had an opportunity to actually question Mandela right. about that. Yeah, yeah. This was you know, much later when when uh, Nelson Mandela became president. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were actually able to have dinner together, and you know, and, and uh, President Clinton, you know, approached President uh, Mandela, and he said, you know, I just have this one question I have to ask you. He says, when you were leaving, you know, Robin Island, I, I saw you on TV, and you looked like you had this kind of angry expression. You know, when, uh, when you saw the crowds of people out there and everything else. And, and Mandela, you know, you know, was basically, uh, you know, very quick in his response. And he said, you know, I looked at the crowd and I looked at people and I thought, you know, 20 something years, 26 years of my life had been robbed from me, you know, and so there was this kind of feeling of anger. And then he realized, he says, you know, while I was in prison, I was not a prisoner. Now that I'm free, I don't want to be a prisoner. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, is that don't let that the freedom of being able to do what you want to do and make the choices ultimately create an inner mental prison, which so many of us, I mean, that's the reason I call the book Prisoners of Our Thoughts, is sometimes we create our own uh, cells and we, and we lock ourselves in those cells and we don't realize that we hold the keys and they're within us mm-hmm. and they're within reach. So we can do something about it. And what President Mandela was trying to say when he left Robin Island, he said, you know, I've been incarcerated for 26 years and, you know, I was, a, I was physically a prisoner. But I was able to find freedom. And part of the, part of the reason was, and again, I'm saying this in a, in a, a faith-based but non-religious sense, but uh, what really drove Mandela to that point was he had gone to a, a Bible study group while he was in Robben Island. And so that's when he learned, you know, really the, the, you know, this basic idea that, okay, now that I'm free, don't become somebody else's prisoner. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's very sp- profound. And the idea that uh, 
those of us who who enjoy every freedom, certainly people living in uh, the Western world enjoy enormous amounts of freedom, that, that we often do this to ourselves. We Certainly. we become captives to our own thoughts. Absolutely. At times. Yeah. You know, and, and I know this, you know, from receiving many letters, mostly written, handwritten letters. They're not typed, they're not emailed from incarcerated prisoners from literally all around the United States, Canada, Europe, so forth. And and many times I get those letters right around a holiday, like before the Christmas holiday or something like that. And it, it, those are times of deep reflection for a lot of people. But imagine now being physically in prison. And I've worked with prisoners, I've worked with inmates mm-hmm. in, in state prisons and so forth, who, you know, who in many cases will never get out. I mean, they will never have the kind of freedoms that we take for granted. But at the same time, they're learning how to be free within that incarceration. And what that means is, is that they learn how to be a better person. Uh, I know older inmates, for example, who try to coach and, and, you know, mentor younger inmates to try to get them to say, become like I've become, mm-hmm. you know, try to find some way in which they can find some sense of freedom within their physical incarceration mm-hmm. that they feel that they can do something that's a, of a positive benefit that's, you know, extends beyond themselves. So, and, and so they can, you know, find that their incarceration was in fact meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. You started our interview by saying that every situation has some meaning embodied in it. Yes. Yes. Every, and, and I was, that's one of the most profound things that Viktor Frankl taught me and everybody else is that there is a seed, a seed of meaning. Again, we don't create it. We look for it. We discover it. If we don't look for it, we're not going to find it. But the idea here is that there are different levels of meaning. There are different, there's, you know, there is the ultimate meaning, which has a more spiritual uh, mm-hmm. dimension to it. But the idea is when we look for it and if we recognize that everything around us has meaning, every experience we have up until our very last breath, and it could be one of the most negative things, but imagine being incarcerated, all right, in Auschwitz. We couldn't imagine that. Imagine some of the, the horrors that are going on in the Middle East and other parts of the world that we could not, you know, fathom how to deal with that. And so to be able to, to, to really rely on somebody who's experienced that and it came out of that stronger, who came out of that with a mission that was really a spiritual mission to help others find meaning. I mean, that's what kind of helps drive me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I happen to be a veteran of the Vietnam era and I know that a large part of my enthusiasm for life is really about not just finding meaning for myself, but helping others mm-hmm. because I've been blessed. You know, I mean, I'm alive today. I'm at the age I'm at, you know, and, and being able to have this interview with you. And so this is the kind of thing that really kind of gives me meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Alice P- Alex Patakos, thank you so much for being with me. This has been a, a great opportunity to to share a world yeah. of meaning with you. And well, thank of course, you. The, the work that we do here on thinking aloud is is also one, I think, that is imbued with with meaning. Yeah, it certainly is. Jeff, and thank you so much for allowing me to think aloud with you. (laughs) It's been a great pleasure. I hope we can do it again. Uh, I'll take this opportunity to suggest that our viewers will probably enjoy a forthcoming interview with your spouse, Elaine Dundon, who is the co-author with you of The Opa Way, a book that takes the search for meaning even uh, another step further. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Alex, thank you. And thank you for being with us.